Well, thank you so much for the privilege of being here, Pat. Thank you for the kind invitation. And Mike has just worked us. He's one of these very good detail people, you know. Uh, you, you find this out when you go different places. And some people, you wonder what in the world you're going to do when you get there. And other people, you have everything mapped out. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's the case here. And uh, I really appreciate that a lot. I've been looking forward to being with you. Uh, I, I know some of uh, some other people who have spoken very highly of your pastoral staff here, uh, some some friends of friends, as it were, you know. And uh, so it's just great to get to actually meet you, you folks here, and be a part of what the Lord is doing here at Omaha Bible Church. It's thrilling to know there is this church in this area that is uh, providing, you know, rich biblical teaching week by week, uh, resources for the people and is faithful to the Bible and faithful to the gospel and honoring to Christ. Uh, it's just a thrill to know that that's the case, and may God prosper this church, and may it have many, many years ahead, if the Lord tarries, uh, that will uh, be a witness to this community. So I, I'm uh, grateful for your ministry here and uh, thankful for the privilege of being here for the weekend with you. <clears throat> Over the weekend, we're going to be looking at this morning, and then I'll, I'm also preaching on Sunday, and we're going to look at uh, some portraits of who God is, the, the greatness and the grandeur of God, uh, mostly from uh, portions of Isaiah. Uh, boy, the book of Isaiah has, oh my goodness, I mean, just the most astonishing uh, pictures, as it were, of God's greatness and glory, his power and his sovereignty, his, his, uh, his independent existence and, and might, his holiness and his mercy. Uh, you, you just see that just dripping out of, of the book of Isaiah constantly. And uh, so that's going to be our primary source. We're, we're going to look at these portraits of God. This first session, we'll take a look at the holiness and mercy of God that we'll see out of Isaiah 6. In this following session, we'll take a look at the love of God from Isaiah 43. And, uh, and honestly, the, you know, well, I'll, I'll say more when we get there. But boy, this is an area, the love of God that really needs to be understood rightly by the people of God, because if there's anything out there that people would affirm, I mean, the, the man on the street, as it were, uh, of God, it would be that God is love. But here's the fact. They don't know what the love of God is in the Bible. This is the problem. So we're going to take a look at what that is. And then we'll take a look at divine sovereignty uh, f following in the afternoon session after lunch. And uh, so we have our hands full with some really wonderful, but these are, these are not frothy you know, this is, this is not Bible light today. We're going to be uh, dipping into some things that are deep and wondrous. And may God give us a humility and, uh, and, and an illumination by His Spirit that we will have eyes to see and hearts to embrace uh, the beauty and the wonder and the glory of God's self-revelation. If we don't agree with God about who God is, one of us needs to change. Who do you suppose that is? <clears throat> so let's, let's take God at his word and understand who he is. Well, I hope you have the, uh, the, the nice flyer that was put together, the first outline, Beholding the God of Merciful Holiness. In the introduction, I have a, a couple things I want to say there in regard to, to, uh, uh, to introducing our study of Isaiah 6. First of all, why we must know God, why we need to know God. I read a book when I was a freshman in college that absolutely transformed my life. I am here today in many respects doing what I do. I've, I've been doing this for many, many years now, teaching theology. 
as a result of the work of God in my life as a freshman in college. Uh, how old was I then? I think I, think I was uh, 19, 19 years old. Uh, had, I grew up in a Christian home. My, my folks, who are both now with the Lord, uh, were wonderful Christian parents. But the church I went to, a Baptist church in Spokane, Washington, uh, I, I'm grateful for it. I learned the gospel. I became a Christian there. And there were many good things about that church. But its view of God was pathetic. Pathetic. I'll say more on that uh, later. But, uh, oh my, really the, the slogan over the God that I learned growing up was, poor God, isn't, isn't he lucky I'm here to help him out? That's, that's kind of the ethos. And uh, so in, in my freshman year of college, I, I began learning Bible in, in ways I never had done before, which created in me a earnest longing to know whether the God I had grown up with is the true and living God, and I was pleading with the Lord uh, to, to help me know who he really is. And uh, in, in, the, in the process, the Lord put into my hands a copy of The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, and I have never been the same. What, what a gift that book was to me at that time in my life. It's a book on the attributes of God, and uh, really Tozer's purpose in writing that book is, this is what he wrote, this is in 1962. He said, the view of God entertained among evangelicals in our day is so low, so beneath the dignity of God as to constitute idolatry. That was in 1962. Well, my friends, it is not better today in the evangelical movement by and large. Now, there are pockets of notable exception, but uh, by and large, we are just as bad a shape before, and uh, we really need to know God. Tozer begins chapter one of that book with this statement, famous statement you've probably heard before, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's quite a claim. That's a, that's a great opening sentence, isn't it? Really gets your attention. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if you ask the question, which you know you would if you're thinking as you read that, why, why are you making that claim? Here's what Tozer says just a couple sentences later on the same page. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Now, let me, let me restate what I, goodness, I've thought about this now for so many years. It has impacted my life in unspeakable ways. Here, here's my restatement of Tozer's principle that I think is just one of the most important things that we can learn as Christians is right here, this principle. Here it is. God has so made us that we instinctively, naturally seek to become like whatever it is we esteem most highly. God has so made us that we instinctively, naturally seek to become like whatever it is we esteem most highly, whatever it is we love, we adore, we cherish. Look at it carefully because you are looking at the qualities that your soul instinctively longs to be like. We become like what we love. We take on the qualities of what we cherish. And boy, when you see this, you realize how important then it is to know God rightly because, you know, just, just think of the, the tragedy 
of knowing God wrongly, but loving him, adoring him. That, that is, you know, ha having this conception of God that you love and adore and you become like, and it's not really God. Well, you become like an idol, then don't you? You, you don't become like God. So we have to know God rightly, and in knowing him, find him worthy of our highest esteem, our deepest affection. You know, when I saw this principle, I realized another reason for why the great commandment is so crucial. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not only is important because God deserves that love, as no one else does. Well, you'll see that more this weekend. I mean, why, why that is true. He alone is worthy of that highest of all possible affection that we have, the greatest love that we have. He alone is worthy and deserving of that. We have a duty to love God because he is, we, we owe him that. Well, that's true. That's all true. But here's the other reason why the great commandment is so important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you become like what you love. So you want to be like him? Love him. Know him. Love him, adore him, and you will see at work within your soul a principle that God put within you that you will instinctively, naturally seek to become like him. You know, I saw this lived out, this principle lived out in vivid ways during the years that we lived in the Chicago area. I was teaching at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School north of Chicago, <clears throat> and during the early years that we were there, Michael Jordan made his return to the Chicago Bulls basketball team. And uh, it was fun living in Chicago during those years because, you know, the Bulls were winning uh, games like crazy and then, and then championships like crazy. Well, some of you might remember in those, uh, in those years of the early 90s when the Bulls were winning and Michael Jordan was just the, the icon of the age, right? You know, there was just nobody like Michael Jordan. And uh, there was a commercial that ran during those uh, playoff games, Ad Nauseam, some of you might remember, that had a little refrain in it. I want to be like Mike, be like Mike. Now, I think it was for Gatorade. It might have been for Nike. I, you know, it's one of those brands that he uh, advertised for. But here, here was the principle, you know. I, I don't know if Madison Avenue read A.W. Tozer. Do you think so? Uh, probably not. But they knew Tozer's principle that we want to be like what we love. We had a love affair with Michael Jordan. But here's the problem. We can't shoot like Michael Jordan. We can't run like Michael Jordan. We can't jump like Michael Jordan. But goodness, we can wear Nike tennis shoes like Michael Jordan. We, we can drink Gatorade like Michael Jordan. And we do it because we want to be like what we love, what we adore, what we cherish. It works. This is how we work, my friends. If you wonder why sanctification isn't happening as well as you wish it would in your life, ask yourself this question. How in love am I with Christ? How in love am I with this great, glorious God? How, how well do I know him? And how, how much is this knowledge of him compelling me to long to be like him? This is one of the great keys to growth in the Christian life is this principle. We become like what we love. So know God rightly and in knowing him, find him worthy of your highest esteem. Now, second thing I want to say by way of introduction is when now we're convinced we want to, we want to know God, we want to know him rightly. 
Well, there are two ways in which God has revealed himself that I think are absolutely bedrock in understanding God rightly. And they are contained in the terms transcendence and imminence. Big terms that can be stated more simply. Transcendence refers to God as he is apart from the created order. God who is other than what he has made. God who is eternal and gloriously full in the richness of his existence without a universe. I mean, this is the glorious, eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient God who does not need the world that he made. This is the transcendent, infinite fullness of God. Now, here's the other aspect of God in his revelation. This same God, can you believe it? Who doesn't need any of us more on this Sunday morning. This is the theme really of my message Sunday morning is the self-sufficiency of God. This God who doesn't need anything that he made, including us, is nonetheless the God who has become imminent. That is, he is God with us. God who cares, forgives, strengthens, provides, protects. God who cares for his people, who is with us in our day-to-day lives, in everything that happens. So God apart from us, is transcendence. God with us is imminence. Both of these truths of God have to be understood. Now, in our culture, we have a rush to imminence. We want to talk about God with us. We want to talk about the love of God, the care of God, the the grace of God, the mercy of God. And of course, all those things are good to talk about. They're, They're wonderful. But we do so without understanding the transcendence of God. So what happens then to our understanding of his love and his kindness and his goodness and and all of that? Well, in our culture, add to to it one one more factor here, the self-esteem crazed culture we live in. Why does God love us? Because we're so lovable. Because we deserve his favor. And so we, we have this entitlement mentality that is absolutely contrary to the gospel and absolutely undercuts the truth of what it means for God to love you and me. And the only way to correct this is to start with transcendence, to understand the greatness of who God is in himself, apart from creation, and then be astonished that that God, that God, would deem it good and right to care for the likes of you and me. So grace really is amazing. You know, we sing it in our culture, but we don't believe it when we sing amazing grace. But it is. It is astonishing. So, my my goodness, look at this one verse I have here that kind of puts these two truths of God together. And notice the order of them. It's not only that it has transcendence and eminence, which one comes first? Transcendence is the bedrock, the, 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 the primary notion that then out of that comes the astonishing truth also of his imminence. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, holy meaning set apart, separate, one of a kind. There is no one like me, declares the Lord. Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and a holy place. And also, I mean, those words right there 
should just cause our jaws to drop. We, we should just be stunned. Our breath should be taken away from us. And also, really, you, the great God in the high and the holy place who, who exists in the fullness of your perfection eternally, you also dwell with the contrite, the lowly of spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the spirit of the contrite. So my friends, we, we need to get this. We need to see this transcendence and imminence. And we need to see them in that order so that we don't rush to imminence and so pervert it. But we start with transcendence and understand the astonishing, amazing, almost unbelievable truth of God's imminence, his care for the likes of us. All right, well, Isaiah 6, turn if you would to Isaiah 6. This particular vision that the Lord gives to Isaiah of himself really does illustrate this, the, these truths of transcendence and imminence and the priority of transcendence so very well. Let me read verses 1 through 8 so we have it in mind, and then we'll work through these verses together. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. Well, it's very clear that this vision of the Lord moves from transcendence to imminence and, and unpacks for us truths in both of those categories that are astonishing. Let's begin with the transcendence of God, the transcendent majesty of God. Look with me at, at, at the descriptors that we find in verses 1 to 4. The vision begins with this statement in, in, in verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, which of course is a, uh, a historical marker for us. It's dating for us when this vision comes. And that's at 740, 740, 740 B.C., uh, when Uzziah died. Now, as I think about why Isaiah would include that, that statement in the year of King Uzziah's death, obviously it is to let us know when this happened, but I think it, it really means more than this because Uzziah was, among the kings of Judah, one of the good kings until the end of his life. More, more on that in a moment. But through most of his life, he trusted the Lord. He sought to be obedient. 
uh, and, and, uh, and God honored him and brought military exploits to him. I mean, he, he uh, developed uh, armory and, and different, different kinds of weaponry that had never been developed in Israel. And the Lord prospered him in his military efforts. And, and Israel prospered under the reign of Uzziah. Now, that was not always true with the kings of Judah, right? The kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, every one of them did evil in the sight of the Lord. But in the southern kingdom, it was a mixed bag. Some did good and some did evil. Uzziah was, on, a, on the whole, one of the good kings. So when, when Isaiah says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I think it means more than 740 B.C. It means that. But I think it means this. In a time of great uncertainty, when I don't know what the next king is going to be like, whether he will be supportive of the people of God, whether he will advance the work of the prophets, you know, whether he will want to bring about righteousness among the people of God as Uzziah did. Maybe he will be a wicked king as many others have been. In the year of King Uzziah's death, in a time of great uncertainty, now get this, I saw the Lord. You see the point? Stability, rock, solid certainty that there is one who reigns over all things. Look at verse 3. The whole earth is full of his glory. One who reigns over all things and will not fail. He will not die as Uzziah did. He will always be there for his people. So boy, what hope there is because of this God who is always on his throne. Now, one more thing about Uzziah. Most of his life, he was what I described, this good king who honored the Lord and God blessed him. But at the very end of his life, do you remember how he died? What, what, what happened toward the end? He went into the temple and he wanted to burn incense, do, doing something that the priests were supposed to do. And in fact, the priests who were there told him, don't do this, Uzziah. And he insisted on doing it anyway, and God struck him with leprosy. So he lived the remaining years of his life excluded from the community of Israel and died in shame as a leper. Now, why, why was that? Well, because God had established long ago that the line of the kings of Israel was a different line than the line of the priests of Israel, right? The line of the kings was from what tribe? tribe of Judah. David was of the tribe of Judah. By the way, this is why Saul could never have been in God's design, never could have been the first of the kings of Israel uh, that would have led to the Messiah. Why? He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He wasn't from the tribe of Judah. So David, the first king of Israel and all the kings after him, even in the northern kingdom uh, with the Jeroboam and Rehoboam in the south, it, still those are sons of David. And, and, and so we have the Davidic line that continues on in both north and south. But the, Davidic, the, the, the kingly line is the, from the tribe of Judah. But the line of the priests comes from the tribe of Levi. Through Aaron, Moses and Aaron brothers were both Levites. And Aaron was picked out as the one who would be the line of the priests. So, you know, if you ever, ever wonder about, I don't understand the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. Well, it's just this, that from Levi, which is a big family, is Aaron, what, one, of, one of the descendants of Levi. And it's from him primarily that the priests of Israel came. And the Levites, the other Levites served in the temple and, and uh, in, in various capacities. But it was really the line of Aaron from, from that point on that served as the, the actual priest and the high priest 
in Israel. Okay, well, anyway, you have so <clears throat> the line of Judah is the king, the line of priests is the Levites. Well, Uzziah was just in one of those families, not both, obviously. And so he, he was the king, and he should not function as a priest. And, it, this, you know, the same thing happened with Saul. He, he offered sacrifices, you remember? And part of the judgment that came upon Saul was he functioned as a priest. And that's, why, that's one of the reasons the kingship was taken from him. So here we have Uzziah that although he lived uh, a righteous life for most of his life, acted in presumption toward the end of his life. Boy, that's a lesson. I just turned 58 years old. And, uh, you know, I just, oh, my, these stories in the Bible. Hezekiah is another one. Oh, goodness gracious. It just honestly sends terror up my spine at the thought of somehow betraying God in my older years. I do not. I've pleaded with God, take me home. You know, there's any way you want. Just take me home. Uh, if, if you know that the way this is going is to somehow belittle, belittle your name. I do not want that. But this happened with Uzziah. This happened with Hezekiah. And, uh, and it's, it's a very sad thing. Uh, and and what, what he did was, in his presumption, was to function as a king priest. Keep that in mind, all right? King priest. And that was despicable in God's sight. Okay, in the year of King Uzziah's death, now what did Isaiah see? He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne... Throne would indicate what? What kind of person sits on a throne? A king. A king is on a throne, right? He's, he's sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Now, we're not told how this is the case, but somehow this throne chair is lifted up high in, in this room in which it is situated. Whether it's on some kind of a pedestal or whether it's suspended in midair, I mean, we just don't know how it is up high, but it is elevated. What, what's the point of mentioning that? of this throne is lofty and exalted, indicates what? The, the, the supremacy of this king over all things. As again, in verse 3, the whole earth is full of his glory. So it indicates this king has a royal reign that is over all things. This lofty and exalted place indicates his supremacy as king. So I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe. So he's wearing a royal robe, a kingly robe. And the train of his robe wraps around and around and around and fills the temple. Wow. Now, what's the point of a long train? Well, I think it's something like, something like this. I will never forget. We were living in Pasadena, California at the time, a long time ago. When I, I went to bed this one evening and my wife asked me, she said, honey, do you want me to wake you up to watch the wedding? And I said, no, dear, I'm not interested. You enjoy it and you can tell me about it in the morning. Well, at about 4 a.m. she woke me up anyway because she, you know how it is, something really exciting, you can't stand to watch it alone, you know. So she, she was watching this wedding unfold, Lady Di, Prince Charles, and what got her was the scene of Lady Diana walking down the center aisle of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And it was so spectacular, she shook me in bed and said, Bruce, you've got to come and look. So I came out blurry-eyed, you know, and I will never forget the scene I saw on that television at that moment with the train of her wedding dress trailing along 
seemingly endlessly behind her. Some of you remember that scene. Why such a long train for that bride in that wedding? Royalty, majesty, splendor, beauty, radiance, glory, right? The train of his robe fills the temple. Unparalleled splendor, glory, majesty this king has. Now, one more detail. Notice, he sits on what? A throne. So he's a king. And well, you would expect if he's a king that the throne would be in what kind of a place? What, what building would it be in? A palace, right? But what is it in? Ah, the train of his robe filled the temple. Temple. So here we have a king priest. The irony of this is Thick. It is thick. Here is Uzziah who is judged by God and is a leper the remaining years of his life for being a king priest. And here, you, here Isaiah sees a vision of this great king who is in a temple, who is a king priest. Now, the only way we can make sense of this is this must be then a, a prefigurement of what? Of Jesus, who is the first and only king priest of Israel, king in the line of Judah, priest in the line of Melchizedek. I mean, Hebrews develops this. You know, we can't take time to go into that, but boy, isn't it fascinating that God has established a means by which this one who would come as savior for us would be the king priest and prophet as well, but you know, king priest together. And this is confirmed, this hunch is confirmed in John chapter 12, where in verse 41, uh, John has just quoted from Isaiah 6, from the, the latter part of this chapter. He has just quoted from it, and then he makes this comment that Isaiah saw him and spoke of him. So referring to Christ. So here, in fact, is a prefigurement of the one who will come as Jesus, who is the king priest of his people. Okay, so here is this glorious king and lord. And, and sovereign, who is over all things, lofty and exalted, with splendor unparalleled, beauty and majesty unlike any other king. And yet he resides in this temple. Verse 2. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, isn't it amazing? These seraphim are glorious creatures, that they are beautiful and powerful and splendor-filled. I have no doubt that if one of those seraphim were to just all of a sudden enter this room, we would be so stunned by the beauty and the brilliance, we would fall down on our faces. These are great, holy creatures. Now, keep that in mind. These are not sinful angels who sinned that are the demons of the Bible. No, these are sinless, gloriously mighty angels who are before God. And, 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 and they have six wings. With two of them, they are flying around the throne. But notice what it says. With two of them, they cover their face. Now, why would these seraphim cover their face? Well, in all likelihood, it is this. Even though they are sinless, glorious creatures, they are just that, creatures. God alone is the creator. They are finite. God alone is infinite. 
Everything they have, as glorious as it is, is derivative. Everything God has, as infinitely glorious as it is, is intrinsic. Do you see the difference between creator and creature, between infinite and finite, between possessing intrinsically everything that is good in infinite measure and being given it by another? So these seraphim acknowledge the the infinite gulf there is between them and God. Yes, they have a glory, but it's a created glory. Yes, they have a glory, but it's a derived glory. The glory of this one king is so great, they cannot look upon him. So they cover their eyes. With two of the wings, they cover their feet. Now, this is hard to know for sure. Feet, perhaps referring to... Like with Moses, take off your sandals, the place you stand on is holy ground. Something about the feet in the presence of God covering the feet. I think think probably the message is this. They, They are obviously worshiping God. We know this from the next verse as they call out holy, holy, holy. They are worshiping this king and this Lord. So the question, how how do you express physically a posture of worship, which would be in, in biblical times, almost always, Bowing, right? How, how do you bow in worship before a king when you are flying around him? Well, conveniently, you have two extra wings in which, with which you can put them in a bowing posture. So they, they put them down over their feet, indicating their reverence, their worship, their adoration of this king. So with two, with two of the wings, they cover their eyes. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. And as they fly around, boy, can you imagine this picture? These seraphim, we don't know how many there are, but they're calling back and forth to one another in antiphonal refrain. According to the book of Revelation, this goes on eternally. It's happening right now in heaven. They are calling out back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, the way that you express a superlative, like the greatest king, is very simple. You you simply give a single repetition of the term. So king, king in Hebrew, the, the way we translate it is king of kings, right? So the king of kings, the king king is the greatest king, the greatest lord. Lord, Lord, Lord of Lords, the greatest Lord. So the way you express a superlative in Hebrew is with a single repetition. Now here we have a unique case in the Old Testament where we have a double repetition. And it is as if to say we cannot express the infinite fullness of the holiness of God in human language. It is inadequate to be able to, to, to give expression to how great is His holiness is beyond our ability to express it or comprehend it fully. Holy, 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 which does not have in mind first and foremost, first, the moral aspect. It's there, but that's not the primary aspect of holiness. The primary aspect of holiness is the set-apartness, the one-of-a-kindness the uniqueness of the one who is holy. If you've ever wondered why the Sabbath day, a day of the week is called holy to the Lord, it's not because, you know, Monday, that's a really wretched day. 
You know, that's, that's a morally impure day. Now, some of you might think that, but you know, it's, not, it's not true. There's nothing wrong with a Monday. You know, Monday, t- you know, Tuesday, oh, that's, you know, that's really yucky. You know, but, but then the Saturday, that, which is the Sabbath, Saturday, that's a, that's a morally pure day. No, that makes no sense whatsoever. There's no moral quality to days of the week, right? So why is the Sabbath holy? It's one of a kind. It's set apart. Six days of the week you work, and the seventh day you rest. It's different. It's unlike any other. It is, it is a unique day. So the primary meaning of the holiness of God is he is unlike anything else. In the ways in which we've already described, he's creator, we're creature. He's infinite, we're finite. He possesses within himself every quality in infinite measure. We possess only what is given to us. We don't have it in ourselves. We are dependent entirely upon him who is in himself independent of all else. So it is the, really the holiness of God is at root the godness of God. That he is God and there is no other God besides him. That's at root what holiness is referring to. Now, coupled with that, though, is the particular sense in which he is separated from all impurity. Anything that would smack of sinfulness and anything that is morally impure, he would be separated from. So that's contained in the concept which is very important in this text, but it's not the fundamental notion. It's one of the derivative notions. He is set apart. That's the main notion. That includes he's set apart from sinfulness. So they cry out in antiphonal refrain, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, his domain, his creation is the expression of his glory, very much as Psalm 19 indicates. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, verse 4, we still have a couple more details that are told us of this vision of God. Verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Two details there, both of which are significant. First of all, is the the foundation stones of the thresh, uh, the thresholds of the, I'm sorry, let's see, the foundations of the thresholds trembled as these seraphim call back to one another in antiphonal refrain, holy, 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 and the foundation stones are trembling. Now, I have been to some loud concerts in my life, especially in my younger years. You know, goodness, I grew up in the 60s, you know, and uh, went to a few of these rock concerts. Regret it, but I did. And, I, you know, I can remember one concert I went to, I stood against the wall because there was no seating left, and the wall was trembling at that bass guitar and, you know, the volume that was there and all the rest. I've, I've been to places where the windows rattled, but can you imagine the temple that is described here, the very foundation stones set in the, in, in the earth, those foundation stones are trembling. The intensity of worship is what is being expressed in this. They are so overwhelmed at the greatness of this Lord. They cannot contain it. We are in for a huge surprise when we get to heaven. At unabashed, uninhibited, 
sinlessly, that's what we will be at the time, right? Praise God. Sinlessly expressed worship of who God is. The seraph are modeling for us the true worthiness of God in the way in which they worship him. The intensity and the volume shook the foundation stones. Wow. The last detail. While the temple was filling with smoke. What is this smoke? Well, I, you know, I, for, for a number of years, as I worked on this passage, I didn't know. I mean, the, the, if you look at the commentaries, they will tell you smoke is associated with the glory of God. For example, at Mount Sinai, you know, the top of the mountain is, is in a shroud of cloud and smoke. And, and surely that's true. That, that's part of it. But as I studied this more, I became convinced this is the last detail told us before what? Woe is me. Okay, I'm ruined. Now, given the fact this is the last detail told, told us, it is a really significant point that is there. And I, and I think that it has more to say than, than merely the, the sort of the mysterious nature of the glory of God. And I, I think it is this. If you look a little bit later in the passage, I mean, we read it just a moment ago. There's another object in this temple that we haven't been told about yet. What is it? There's an altar with what in it? Burning coals. Well, burning coals would obviously emit smoke, right? Well, what, what, is, that, what is that altar? What's, what purpose does that altar serve? Well, a seraph, we'll, t- we'll talk about this more in just a moment, but a seraph takes a coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips and he is forgiven, right? So what it indicates is purification. Purification. So here, here's my thought, is this smoke that fills the temple is, an indica- is a symbol of the fullness of the purity of God. He cannot abide sin. That's the last thing we see before woe is me. I'm ruined. I, I, it's, I, it's not. I, I have a few problems. You know, I, I've got a few things to work on. No, I am ruined. Why? Because I see who I am because I see who you are. You cannot abide sin. You are, you are shrouded in smoke that indicates your moral purity. Now, my friends, you need to feel the weight of this. Feel the weight of a God who is morally pure and cannot abide sin. We trivialize God in our culture so much. We don't know what to do with an Uzzah who reaches out his hand to stay the ark and he is killed like that. We don't know what to do with that because we do not understand the holiness of God that he will not tolerate any sin. Boy, it trivializes the cross then, doesn't it? Why did he come? Why did he die? If it was not for the purpose of removing every single sin, without which we would never be able to enter into the presence of God. So here here is this symbol of the purity of God. Verse 5, then Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let me just a couple comments here on verse 5. Number one is the last phrase, for, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you see the logical connection here? How is it he is able to see the extensiveness and the hideousness of his own sin? Only because he has first seen the infinite splendor and the purity of the holiness of God. You know, we we do our people no favor by hiding from them the, the greatness of the splendor of God's holiness because when we do that, we keep them from understanding their own need for him, their sin of their life that, that is abhorrent in his sight. So, boy, you know, the, the, the feel-good type stuff that's out there in our churches today is an abomination, an abomination. It trivializes God and it trivializes our sin. And it, it, it just is so wrong to do to the people of God. These, these pastors who preach that way are going to give an account one day. It is so wrong to hold back from people the truth of who God is in His holiness and purity and insistence on righteousness that only exposes, only when we see that does it expose the sin of our lives. Woes mean I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Second observation. You know, Isaiah could have had the attitude, compared with the rest of the people out there, at least a whole lot of them, I'm in pretty good shape. I mean, I'm a prophet of the Lord. I, I seek, I seek to, to carry out His will. I, I'm wanting to honor God with my life. Compared to these people out there who are just... Miserable sinners, they're rebellious, they're idolaters. You know, so, you know, really, in comparison, I'm doing pretty good. Oh, yeah? Look at verse 5 again. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Do you see what happened? A leveling took place, where in comparison to God, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if, if you see tiny little molehills, You know, you think that might be significant. And then back behind the background is the Rocky Mountains. And you realize, oh, you know what? There's really no significant difference at this level compared to that. And that's a a trivial example, right? Trivial illustration compared to infinity, the difference between finite and infinite. But so, so I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. So we realize we are all in the same condition. There is no basis for boasting among any of us. We are ruined people. Do you know that of yourself? You have nothing in yourself. I have nothing in myself to commend myself before God. I am ruined, period. One more comment. Verse 5, notice what he says, the uncleanness, the focus of the uncleanness. I'm a man of unclean lips, lips. Why lips? I mean, why, why not an unclean heart, unclean hands, uh, un- unclean feet? You know, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, my first thought, this goes back many years ago, my first thought was, well, he's a prophet. You know, so he's aware of what he's called to say and when he's 
speaking at home with his wife and kids or whatever, you know, he doesn't speak the way he should and he's aware of the sin. Uh, the problem with that, I mean, no, no doubt that's true, but the problem with that is the next phrase, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Well, they're, they're not all prophets. So that, that cannot be the, the reason that he's referring to this. So I think rather it is likely this. And maybe it does flow out of his pr- prophetic role, the, the importance of what he says. But nonetheless, th- this is what I think he's indicating. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's aware by his mouth of what, is, what the condition of his heart is. It betrays, you know, when we say what we want to say, when we are unhindered, when, when we're not concerned about what other people might think about it, and, and we're, you know, we're, we're just speaking freely, we betray our heart. We, we talk about the things we care about, what we don't like about. I mean, we really do betray what's inside. So here is Isaiah, and he realizes, boy, my lips betray a sinful heart. And this is true among the people of God, generally. So he is, he is ruined. All right, now we're at the end of verse 5. I just want to make a comment here and see if you agree with this. The story could end right here. Do you agree with that? That is, God is not obligated to do what he does next. Bring mercy. The minute you think in terms of obligatory grace, what have you done? You've eliminated grace. It's, it's no longer unmerited favor. No. So, so, I mean, my friends, just feel the weight of this. This could end right there. Just like Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 could end right there. We are children of wrath even as the rest. Period. End of discussion. It doesn't end there though, does it? But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. That's Ephesians 2, 4. Well, here we have a but God moment. So verse 6, one of the serum flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Notice in this that God takes the initiative. It is nothing Isaiah does. He's on his face ruined. God sends the seraph to come and bring forgiveness. The mercy and the grace and the saving kindness of God is by his initiative and his design. We, we don't earn it. We, don't have, we can't take any credit for it. There's no basis in us for why God has done this. But he does because it is out of his nature to do so. Not that he is obligated to do so. That's really critical to see. But nobody forces him to do so, right? This isn't like Johnny be a good boy, right? God show mercy. Oh, no, this is out of himself that he chooses this. And yet he doesn't have to do so. Notice, secondly, that the means of mercy is a purification that is in a personalized form. Isaiah had said, I am a man of unclean lips. Again, we struggle with exactly why he said that, but that's what he said. I'm a man of unclean lips. So what does the seraphim do with the coal? He touches his lips. Here's the idea. I have, God says, I have forgiveness for you that matches your sin. I have a cure for you that matches your ailment. 
Boy, what, what, I mean, he, he is the perfect spiritual doctor, this God is. He prescribes exactly what we need to have our sin forgiven. The glory of that. And notice finally, the goal of his, this mercy is restoration and service. So he, your iniquity is taken away, your sin is forgiven, verse 7, and right upon the heels of that is what? I heard a voice saying, who will I send? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. I mean, isn't it amazing that God's attitude toward us is not, okay, I've forgiven you and just don't do it again and get out of my sight. I mean, that would be good enough, wouldn't it? But it isn't. It's, I've forgiven you and now I call you into my service. I call you to participate in my work that I care deeply about. Don't you think that's true of the Lord? He cares deeply about His work. And what does He do? Calls us as now forgiven sinners to be part of His very work. So what this is, is love upon love upon love. It is grace upon grace upon grace. As now He calls Isaiah into service, not only to forgive him, but to restore him so that he can serve. And the, the service of Isaiah is really difficult. We don't have time to look at this, but you could read the rest of the chapter and see there are no pats on the back for this preacher. No, no thank you, Pastor, for that wonderful sermon. Uh-uh, none of that. It is they will hate everything you say. They will reject it. And why does God want him to preach to this people who will reject it? precisely to show the hardness of their heart. The very purpose of his preaching is to expose their rebellion. It is not to bring about conversion. It is not to bring about forgiveness for them. It is to expose they are deserving of the Assyrian assault I'm about to bring upon them, northern kingdom, of the Babylonian captivity they're about to come under uh, in, in, in the southern kingdom. You will demonstrate how much my people are deserving of the judgment they receive as you preach to them and they reject again and again and again the word that I bring to them through you. That's his ministry. Wow. It is very difficult. What sustains that? And the answer is he knows God. He is awestruck with God's majesty and he is absolutely stunned that that God would show him mercy. So it's in knowing God that he's able to sustain this difficult ministry. Well, may God help us to see God for who he is and understand ourselves as we are and then revel in the privilege of being called into his service. And by that, I don't mean the pastoral staff. This is everybody who's in the faith, right? He calls all of us. We are ministers, according to Ephesians 4. We are, uh, all, all of us. The, the God has given us the privilege to be his ministers. What a, what a glorious God he is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity in these moments to look at just something of your greatness and glory from this chapter. And we pray that you would help us to be a people who longs to know you more and more and more, to love and adore you, to be made like you, and to, 
live before you in a manner that would bring honor to your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.